0: Well, good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis chapter 36 and verse 1. The title of our message this morning is Civilization in Decline civilization in decline. As we just sang about this morning, the Lord is raising up here in the book of Genesis a very special nation, the nation of Israel, so that the King of Israel, our Lord Jesus Christ, could be born into our world. No, no Israel, no Jesus. It's that simple. And so that's why all of the details and information are given to us in the book of Genesis as we've been moving through it. God is raising up this nation through three patriarchs. The first is Abraham. The second is Isaac. The third is Jacob. And after church, chapter 36, we'll be leaving the Jacob story and we'll be spending the new year, Lord willing, in the more familiar territory of the Joseph story, uh, equally significant to the foundation of the nation of Israel. But a lot of Christians are so eager to get to the Joseph story that they just skip right over Genesis 36. I mean, who wants to study all these names anyway? You know, Bay Smith, Oh et cetera, et cetera. So a, a normal, psychologically well-adjusted person would just sort of skip over 36 and go to 37, but since you guys come to Sugarland Bible Church, I know you're not normally psychologically well-adjusted people. You like detail, so. Here's how we can uh, divide this chapter up. It starts off verses 1 through 8 with Esau's sons uh, born in the land of Canaan. Now Esau, unlike Jacob, is not the child of promise. Jacob is, and so we have a chapter on what became of Jacob's, excuse me, Esau's descendants. And then after we finish chapter 36, Esau disappears from the book of Genesis and the whole focus is Jacob, Jacob in the land and how God used a, a character named Joseph to preserve his special nation from, from famine. But notice, first of all, as you look at verses 1 through 8, notice, first of all, Esau's tablet. Uh, notice, if you will, verse 1. It says, now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Now, once again, most people would just skip right over that. These are the generations of. But when you read this in Hebrew, it's a highly significant word. The word is Toledot. And that's a statement of records. Um, There are 11 of these Toledot translated, these are the generations of, in the book of Genesis. And now we're coming to the second to the last uh, Toledot in the book of Genesis. And what this indicates is that when Moses finally set out to pen the book of Genesis, he did not do it in a vacuum. Uh, he did not receive some kind of direct revelation from God as to what to write. John received that in what we call the book of Revelation, but that's not how the book of Genesis came into existence. Moses is relying upon genealogical records that were handed down from key patriarch to key patriarch in the history that preceded Moses. And Jacob, when we get to chapter 46, is going to leave the land of Canaan and sojourn to Egypt. And that's where God will have supernaturally worked in the life of Joseph, elevating Joseph to second in command in Egypt. And when Jacob came to Egypt, and that's where Moses enters the picture, the book of Exodus will tell us, Jacob brought all of these records these genealogies Toledot, all of them he brought with with him and we believe that all of this all of these records ended up in Moses' hands and when the holy spirit led Moses to write the book of genesis he did it relying upon all of these genealogical records that have been handed down from person to person, from patriarch to patriarch. The first Toledot, and we know this simply by t- t- paying attention to the repetition of the term throughout the book of Genesis. The first Toledot is the introduction to the generations. The second one is the generations of the heavens and the earth. The third one, most likely written by Adam, were the generations of Adam. The next one, written by Noah, are the generations of Noah. The next one written by Noah's sons are the generations of the sons of Noah. And then you'll see Shem had a Toledot. Terah, Abraham's father, had a Toledot. Ishmael comprised a Toledot. You can see where that's located. And the last one that we started studying, one of the longer ones in the book of Genesis, is the Toledot. Of Isaac. And now a brand new Toledot begins. It only spans a chapter. What happened to Esau's descendants? And then there'll be a Toledot of Jacob, which will tell us the Joseph story. And Moses masterfully takes all of this information as the Holy Spirit is directing him, depending upon sources, relying upon sources, Comprising the book of Genesis. This is how the book of Genesis came into existence. Now, a lot of Christians, when you talk like this, they get kind of unsettled because they want it to be God just told Moses what to write. And when you show them that no, Moses was likely writing, relying upon sources, that makes them nervous. But don't let it make you nervous because that's how the gospel of Luke came into existence. Luke was not one of the original 12. He was not an eyewitness to the early ministry of Jesus Christ. And the only way he could have shaped his information and put it all together in something that we call the gospel of Luke is he relied upon eyewitness testimony, records and sources. In fact, Luke tells us that's exactly how he compiled his material. He writes in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, Luke had to interview eyewitnesses. I think Luke probably interviewed Mary, Jesus' mother. Luke says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything thoroughly from the beginning, and that's why this man was a physician. Uh, He had a, a penchant for detail. Uh, if you have a doctor as a physician that doesn't care about detail, you might want to think about a new doctor, getting a new doctor. Luke was a physician, Colossians 4 verse 14 tells us. He had a tremendous faculty for detail and he was a historian and he took all of these eyewitness testimonies and written records of the things of Jesus and he put it together in the Gospel of Luke. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Luke never claims to put together his book from eyewitness testimony. He claims to put it together from interviews, interviews, talking to other eyewitnesses and other written records. It's just that the Holy Spirit used this process, this process of research and writing to comprise Luke's work that we call the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. The Book of Genesis is no different. Moses was uh, supernaturally as we study the book of Exodus, taken away into the household of the daughter of Pharaoh, you remember, and how providentially that happened. That was the work of God, because had Moses remained a slave, he probably would have been illiterate, as most slaves at that time were. But he was taken into the household of the daughter of Pharaoh. Stephen in Acts 7 talks about this. And he was given the greatest education a human being could be given in that time period. And that was the work of the Lord providentially and sovereignly in Moses' life because God knew what Moses would one day accomplish. He would take all of this literature... All of the Toledot, all of the information that Jacob brought back from Egypt, he would shape it, he would compile it under the Holy Spirit's direction, and he would in the process give us the book of Genesis. And so that's the significance of this opening verse here. Now these are the records of the generations of Esau. What happened to Esau's descendants? There's a a Toledot on this that Moses includes. The rest of the verse defines Esau as Edom because Edom is the nation that is going to come forth from Esau. The nation of Israel will not come forth from Esau. The nation of Israel through whom Christ will come into our world will come through Jacob's line. But after all, Jacob and Esau were twins. We want to know what happened to Esau's descendants. Esau would become Edom. Edom would not be the nation to bring forth Jesus. That is a privilege given to the nation of Israel. And then as you move down into verses 2 and 3, you have a record of Esau's wives, plural. By my count, there's three of them. And that's why I entitled this uh, sermon, The Decline of Civilization. <laughs> civilizations begin to decline when civilizations abandon God's standard for marriage. God's standard for marriage pre-fall is one man for one woman for one life. Heterosexual monogamy. That's what makes civilizations great. The book of Proverbs says righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Notice it doesn't say interest rates exalt a nation. Tax policy exalts a nation. It says righteousness exalts a nation. And every civilization that will respect God's marital standard thrives and prospers. Every society or civilization historically that rejects what God says in Genesis 1 and 2 begins to decline. And this is a group of people, as we're going to see, that will be in decline. And the reason for that is they are abandoning here right from their progenitor, Esau, abandoning God's standard of heterosexual monogamy. Now, I, I realize <laughs> that when I talk like this, there are many people within the sound of my voice that have fallen short of that standard. And I'm not here to heap uh, criticism on you. I'm not here to heap condemnation or guilt or judgment on you. Uh, the grace of God is available for every single human being. But that doesn't change the fact that there's a standard. I didn't invent the standard. Don't get mad at me for articulating the standard. This is God's standard. You respect the standard, a country prospers. You reject the standard, the country begins to disintegrate. And I'll just ask you hypothetically, are we in an upswing or a downswing here in the United States of America? I would say we're headed down. Our civilization is declining And it has very little to do with the capital gains tax and other things everybody talks about. It has to do with, are we going to honor what God says in his word or are we not? And the choice is ours. Esau's descendants, as you'll see, are not honoring God's truth and God's word. But their Toledot, nevertheless, is given to us in Genesis 36. So his first wife was named Ada. Verse 2, it says, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Uh, the second daughter is Oholibama, not Obama, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. And then verse 3 gives us his third wife, also Basmoth, Ishmael's daughter. Now there he married an Ishmaelite. Also Basmoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of, uh, let's see how you pronounce that, nibioth is I think how you pronounce that. So you'll notice right out of the gate here that, Esau is abandoning the standards of the Lord. It's sort of interesting how hard God worked to get, let's say, um, Isaac married by leaving the land of Canaan and going up north to Haran to get a wife for Isaac, God was very clear that he did not want his own nation intermarrying with the wicked Canaanites. Genesis 24 is a very, and we've gone through that chapter, a very detailed analysis of where Isaac got his wife from. And given that precision of God, it's just very, very sad to me to note how fast Esau is abandoning God's standard. He's intermarrying with the Canaanites, something that was displeasing to God. Genesis chapter 26 and verses 34 and 35 says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, and Basmoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Now watch this. And they, that's these Canaanite wives, brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. It greatly displeased his parents that Esau was moving in this direction, abandoning God's standards. Genesis chapter 27 and verse 46 says, Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, Like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? The Bible is very clear that as Christians we are not to be unequally yoked. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 16 says, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness And what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Don't be unequally yoked. A yoke is a harness that went over two animals. And if the animals were unequally yoked, meaning they were unequal in strength, the stronger one would influence the weaker one. So in the same way, the Christian is not to enter into an intimate relationship with someone. Obviously, the most intimate relationship you can enter into with someone is marriage where the two of you are unequally yoked. Because if you go into the marriage saying, I'm going to rescue him or I'm going to rescue her, you have an unequally yoked situation where they are going to end up influencing you more than you influence them. And you have an unequally yoked situation. And those contemplating marriage should take that into serious consideration. This is what got Esau into trouble. This is what began to lead to the decline of his people group, his civilization. And he was going directly against all of the advice and prayers and concern of his parents by taking on these multiple wives in the land of Canaan. But I mean, they had such pretty names. Uh, one of one of them is named Ada. I mean, you know what Ada means? Ada means ornament, perfume, or fragrance. I mean, who wouldn't want to be married to somebody like that? Well, the Book of Proverbs says this in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. If you marry for all the wrong reasons and not the right reason, which is you share Jesus together, you share a common worldview, you both are regenerated those things that you originally married for are going to start to disintegrate. Just just take a look at ourselves in the mirror and you'll see evidence of it every single day. None of us are getting younger. And the wonderful thing about being married to someone that you can share Jesus Christ with is although the body disintegrates, the marriage can continue to stay strong because both of you are standing on a foundation which is eternal. You don't have that foundation with an unsaved or unregenerate person. It doesn't matter how much in common you think you have with that individual. What fellowship has light with darkness, the Bible says? I mean, one is a goat, one is a sheep. One is a believer, one is an unbeliever. One is a child of light, one is a child of darkness. One is on the broad road leading to destruction The other one is on the narrow road leading to life. I mean, when you actually start to think about it, one is wheat, one is tear. One is a child of God, one is a child of Satan. I mean, don't tell me that we have a lot in common because we enjoy crossword puzzles together and things of that nature. I mean, the Bible is crystal clear on this concerning people, contemplating marriage. Be careful what you're getting yourself into. And the Old Testament has example after example after example of people like Esau's generation that did it the wrong way. The wonderful thing about the Bible is there's positive examples of how to do it right, and there are negative examples, plenty of them, concerning what to avoid. And we move on here to Ohalabama. The daughter of Anna, the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, so not only is he marrying unbelievers, but he's marrying more than one. Uh, Polygamy. Now again, that is a abandonment of God's sexual marital standard. God before sin entered the world said in Genesis chapter one verse twenty seven, here is my standard. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Heterosexual monogamy. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, also articulating the divine blueprint for marriage, says... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In fact, when Jesus was asked about the subject of divorce and remarriage, those are the two scriptures that he quoted. The Pharisees who are always trying to trick him wanted to get him into a discussion about Rabbi Hillel versus Rabbi Shammai. And those two rabbis had a disagreement over the indecent thing. Uh, Moses says a divorce is permissible if the indecent thing happens. Well, what's the indecent thing? One rabbi said the indecent thing is adultery. Shammai said that. The other more liberal rabbi, Hillel, said, the indecent thing is anything your wife does to displease you. She puts too much salt on your food. She's out. And so, they, so the Pharisees come to Jesus and they, and they question him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Who are you with, Jesus, Shammai, or Hillel? And notice that Jesus doesn't even take the bait. He just goes back to the divine blueprint in Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Heterosexual monogamy. One man for one woman for one life. He answered and said, have you not read? I'm not going to talk to you about what Dr. Phil or whoever is arguing their point. I'm going to talk about the Word of God. Haven't you? He's basically saying to them, don't you guys read the Bible? You're the religious leaders of the country and you want to talk about what these different rabbis are saying? Read your Bible is what he's saying. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now that's Genesis 1.27 that we just read. And said, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis two. 24 that we just read. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, let no man set, a, set asunder. I don't care what hellel says, and I don't care what shemai says. Jesus says I care what Moses says under the direction of the Holy Spirit as Moses was articulating the divine standard for Godly marriage before the fall of man ever transpired. And then we have this uh, third wife, uh, Basmith. It says, also Basemith, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of uh, Nibiath. So she is an Ishmaelite and he intermarried amongst the Ishmaelites and the Canaanites. And so you couldn't get an individual more outside of the will of God on this subject than this man Esau. And this becomes very important because this is where his loins, his lineage, his progeny, the nation of Edom ultimately came from. An apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. The Edomites... And we're gonna show you in just a minute exactly where they settled were a perennial problem to the nation of Israel. In fact, as Moses in the time of Joshua was trying to make his way through the Transjordan and trying to pass through the land of Edom to enter the promised land, he had a, he had a opportunity to write a letter, this is all in Numbers 20, to the king of Edom at the time, can we pass through? And the king of Edom said no. And God kept a record of that. And you'll see how God deals with those types of situations through different prophecies that come later, such as the prophecies given to Obadiah. But at any rate, this is the foundation of Edom. Uh, Esau making these marital decisions that go against God's standard and God's blueprint. You see, the truth of the matter is is the fruit is determined by the root. Show, show me what a country does at the beginning, and I will show you what a country is going to look like down the road. Show me the seeds that are planted at the beginning, and I will show you the fruit that comes forth from those seeds much later in time. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the reasons why God has blessed the United States of America the way he has. It has very little to do with the current generation. It has to do with our godly forebears who on biblical principles, not perfect principles, but on biblical principles laid down the foundation of this republic. Not a country that's perfect and unblemished in everything we've done, but a country that most people around the world, if you give them their choice where to live, they can't wait to get into the United States of America. Why is it that we're having a borders crisis? Not people trying to get out of the country as they do in North Korea or in uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba where they're willing to get in these little rickety rafts and risk shark-infested waters to make the 90-mile voyage from Havana to Miami in hopes of setting foot on American soil. Uh, we don't have that problem in the United States of people trying to get out. The biggest problem is people trying to get in at such overwhelming numbers that it's creating a a crisis. Why is America so different? Why is America so special? It has to do with the root determines the fruit. Why is Edom so anti-God and anti-Israel? Later on in biblical times, it has to do with the root that is being laid down here by Esau through very poor fleshly, self-serving decisions related to marriage. The root determines the fruit. And so what now are the sons that come forth from these three wives? Their names are given, verses 4 and 5. If you look at verse 4, it says, Ada, or Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau uh Baysmith bore Ruel and then down there in the second part uh of verse 4 excuse me going down into verse 5 it says and Aholabama bore Jush and Jalam and Cora and the point of all of this is given there in verse 5 the place where they went These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So the first Toledot related to Esau relates to his children born to him within the land of Canaan. Now, in just a minute, we're going to learn how they left the land of Canaan and went to another land, a place called Mount uh, Seir. But we haven't reached the point where uh, Esau has departed from Canaan, and so these are his wives within Canaan, and these are the children born to him from those wives within the land of Canaan. But there is a departure. That departure is recorded in verses 6 through 8. You have related to that departure a description of the departure itself, verse 6. The reason for the departure, verse 7, and the specific new land that Esau went to in verse 8. Notice this departure, verse 6. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock And all the cattle and his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And went to another land away from his brother Jacob. And so in essence what Esau has just done here is he has ceded the holy land. Canaan later. To become the land of Israel, he has ceded that to his brother Jacob. And that's something he should have done. Because God said, a chapter earlier, in Genesis chapter 35 verse 12, to Jacob, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. So who owns the land? The Edomites do not own the land. Esau does not own the land. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, owns the land. That territory stretching from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq, from the Nile to the Euphrates, is a territory that belongs to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible could not be more clear on this subject. The Bible is completely and totally unambiguous on this subject. And you'll notice this pattern as we move through the book of Genesis that every other people group seems to leave or is displaced Elsewhere, and this is what's happening to Esau, who will beget, as we are studying here, the nation of Edom. We're living right now, as I speak, in a culture and a society and a politically charged atmosphere because of what happened beginning October the 7th to the Jewish people from Hamas, coming from Gaza, attacking the Jewish people. One of the worst atrocities, by the way, probably that the Jewish people have ever suffered in terms of deaths numerically since the Holocaust. Only in the Holocaust were more Jewish people killed. Than what has happened to the Jewish people on October the 7th. We are living in a politically charged environment where people are saying, you know, Hamas was bad. But these these Jews really brought it on themselves because they're occupying someone else's land. In fact, uh, the President of the United States, uh, Obama, former President of the United States, came out right after that attack and basically said what Hamas did was horrific, but (laughs) the occupation is unbearable. In other words, if Israel wasn't there occupying someone else's land, then this attack would have never occurred. And I'm here to tell you that all of that rhetoric is clarified simply by reading the Bible the land belongs to the Jewish people. You can see it clearly here in Genesis chapter 36. doesn't belong to any other people group, including the Edomites. And that's why over and over again, I recommend to people two sources to document this. The first is a book by Joan Peters entitled From Time Immemorial. She was sort of a leftist, liberal, bleeding heart, who went over to the Middle East to disprove the Jewish claim to the land. Because after all, the Palestinians have been there from time immemorial. That's why her book is entitled the way it's entitled. I think she's now deceased, but I remember in her latter years seeing her a number of times um, on Fox News and other outlets. And as she went over and tried to disprove the Jewish claims to the land, she discovered that legally it's the opposite. It's the Jewish people that own that land. And she wrote a fairly dense, thick book on the subject called From Time Immemorial. And she changed her position. She went from being anti-Israel to being pro-Israel. This uh, is a very different kind of liberalism than what we see today. Many people on the left have no interest in facts. They have no interest in information. All they're interested in is pressing forward with their own ideology. They're interested in their own narrative. Facts are sort of a casualty in the whole thing. Joan Peters was of that left-wing mindset, but she says, you know, I've got to be at some point intellectually honest. And her discoveries are found in that book. The second gentleman that I've spoken of before is Dr. Jacques Gaultier, a Canadian international lawyer. Uh, You can find his presentations online. You can find his book online very easily. I actually had the privilege of listening to him live. And he is a Canadian lawyer that worked on a PhD dissertation at the University of Geneva in political science for 20 years. And for 20 years, he was trying to analyze this issue, who owns the land from a legal point of view. And as I've explained before, when you go through a dissertation process, it can be a very, very difficult process because if your readers are hostile to you, they can just hold things up. And so he had to, in the course of 20 years, dot every I and cross every T. And in the process, in his own testimony, he's thankful that he was put through this rigor. He created a dissertation which later became his book where he legally defended that what the Jews have now in the land is legally theirs. His contention after looking at what happened after World War One, World War Two, the San Remo Accord in San Remo, Italy, the post-World War One powers, carving out a piece of real estate for the Jewish people. What happened uh 1947? Now we're no longer dealing with the League of Nations, but the United Nations and what they said in 1947. And going through all of the legalese, he said, you know, you can think whatever you want to think about the Jewish people. You can have whatever <laughs> political viewpoint you want about the Jewish people. But here is the one thing you cannot say. You cannot say that the Jewish people in the land of Israel today are doing anything illegal. In other words, they are occupying nothing because you can't occupy something that's already yours. Uh, I've used this meme before. Israel doesn't occupy the land. They own it. And the book of Genesis says that. No, Edom, you're not going to stay in the land. You're going to go somewhere else. This land belongs to Jacob. And of course, one of the great tragedies of our day is most people don't even know these legal sources exist. Most people really could care less about what the Bible says let alone some of these legal and academic sources that I'm citing. I've shown you this before from our recent trip. This was taken, this picture, by some people that joined us from Australia, people I know, coming from traveling on Qatar Airlines to Rome. And as you fly... Uh typically what happens is the airline will show you a picture of where you're flying to. And you'll notice they took a picture here of the Middle East. This is what everybody on the airplane saw. Those that were joining us took a picture of it. And once I discovered they had a picture of it, I said, you have to send it to me. Because I can use this over and over again to get my point across. And it's just a matter of looking at what Qatar Airlines was showing them on this map, and it's a question of just asking, what's missing? Well, the whole nation of Israel is missing. You see what they wrote over it? Palestinian territories. Well, that's not what the San Remo Accord held. That's not what happened in 1947. And yet you have a whole branch of the world that acts as if the Jewish nation really doesn't exist because they're Jewish occupiers. And the truth of the matter is <laughs> this issue has to do with the worldwide spread of Islam. That's what's motivating this. Because to Islam, Israel, they don't even like to use the word Israel, Jerusalem is a holy site. It's where Mohammed allegedly ascended back to Allah on a steed named Barak. Uh, Can't make up this stuff, could I? Even if I wanted to. And so they will not acknowledge that Israel exists. With this mindset, they have no interest in a two-state solution. They have, they have interest in taking control of the entire enchilada. Maybe a better metaphor is the entire shawarma. You know, you know, we want all of it because you are an illegal occupier. And when Barack Obama says the occupation is unbearable, this is the mindset through which he comes. He is contradicted legally by Joan Peters. He is contradicted legally by Dr. Jacques But But who cares what these people say? Let's just hide the truth from the American people and repeat a lie over and over again. Because if you repeat a lie long enough, people will eventually what? Believe it's true. And so what people hear over and over again is occupied territory, occupied territory, occupied territory. And if you hear that enough, you're going to think, well, Israel must be doing something illegal. I'm here to tell you that Israel is doing nothing illegal. And I'm here to tell you that God says, even more important than these other legal sources Is doing nothing illegal because the land belongs to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, not you, Edom. Edom, you're going to go to another land. And so, Edom, Esau, beginning Edom, leaves the land of Canaan. Takes his Canaanite wives, three of them, the Children born through these unions and historically leaves uh, Canaan, the land of Israel. It's just fascinating to read through the book of Genesis. It reads like a, a real estate contract. God is very clear that I'm bringing a special nation into the world from a very special land That very special nation is going to be the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is going to reside in a specific land. And from that area, I'm going to bring forth my Israeli, Jewish, Hebraic Messiah to the whole world. And what will happen to him will end up blessing all of planet Earth. That's what God is putting into motion here. When God acts, Satan tries to erase and that sort of explains the great tension in that part of the world. But why did Edom, Esau, Edom leave? You have an answer there given in uh, verse 7. It says, for their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourn could not sustain them because of their livestock. Probably the kind of situation that you have happening here in verse 7 is there's no room for the two of us to coexist. Why is that? It had to do with Canaanite city-states, which at this time were all over the land of Canaan. And because of the largeness of these Canaanite city-states, real estate was not available. And if I'm going to prosper as Jacob and Esau, you're going to prosper, there's not enough room for the two of us to coexist, and so someone has to leave. And that becomes the reason why Edom, coming from Esau, left uh, Canaan. By the way, why was Jacob prospering the way he was to the point where there was no room for Esau? That's what God said would happen. In uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, God is very clear that I will bless you. This is why everywhere Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went, they were materially prosperous. Jacob, you'll remember, went up north and spent 20 years at in Haran under Laban as Laban was constantly seeking to cheat him. And no matter what Laban threw at Jacob, Jacob continued to prosper. That's the power of the unconditional promise that God gave to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and now there's so much prosperity that whatever available real estate is left, there's not room for both of us. I hope by this time in our study of the book of Genesis, we're all learning together that God means what he says and says what he means. If God says Israel is going to prosper, you can expect to see that all the way through the book of Genesis, which is what we're seeing. If God says, I'm going to curse nations that come against Israel, that's exactly what you can expect to happen. Not not only all the way through the book of Genesis, but also through the entire Bible. God is a God of his word. The Bible is very clear, Hebrews 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. And you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, yeah, that's just for the Jewish people. What does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Because God has made you, as a member of his church, unconditional promises. He's promised you eternal life. He's promised you that immediately upon death, your soul will go directly into His presence. He's promised you that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. He has promised that He has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Someone calculated that there are as many as 7,000 promises that apply to the church age believer today. And sometimes when life gets a little difficult, we're tempted to think that maybe God has reneged. I'm here to tell you that not only has he not reneged, but he can't renege. It's impossible for God to lie. That's his character. And that's his nature. And when you see his faithfulness to the Jewish people, that becomes a testimony concerning the trustworthiness of God. This is a God that you can build your life upon because his promises are ironclad. Israel today, the miracle on the Mediterranean, as I like to call it, God said, you're going into worldwide dispersion. Because you've rejected your king, Jesus, when he came 2,000 years ago. You're going to go into worldwide dispersion. That started to happen in AD 70. But as we get closer to the end of the age, I'm going to recycle you. From all the nations of the earth where you have gone. And I'm going to bring you back into the exact same land that you were evicted from. 2,000 years earlier. And by the way, when I bring you back, you're going to continue speaking your same language. The Hebrew language has been revived. You're going to maintain your culture. The Jewish culture has been revived. And when you see that, you have to understand that that is a modern-day miracle. Because the sociologists tell us that when a nation is outside of its homeland... For two to three generations, it will assimilate into the host culture. That's why today we don't see, you know, Jebusites and Gergeshites and etc. Even though they're mentioned in the Bible, they assimilated. They assimilated into their host culture. You know, we don't say so-and-so and and -and so-and-so moved in down the street. What a lovely Amalekite couple. Lovely Amalekite family. We don't say that because the Amalekites and all of these other ites, the mosquito bites, the termites, the electric lights, etc. They don't exist anymore. But here is Israel outside of its land for 2,000 years. And then they go right back into the same land 2,000 years later and they never assimilated. Their culture still and language still remain separate and religion. Now, if that's not a miracle, I don't know what one is. I always get a kick out of these people saying, I want God to perform miracles today. Are, Are you kidding me? When you look at the nation of Israel, an independent Jewish nation in the Middle East, you're seeing a modern-day miracle. And yet it's the plan of God, it's the design of God, it's the program of God because God through that group is going to bring his kingdom to the earth one day. Just like God through that group brought his king, his savior to the earth 2,000 years ago. This is why the Bible is so clear in documenting that it's Jacob's land. Esau, who would begat Edom, is leaving. So where did Esau go? Where is his new land? It's given right there in verse 8. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Now where is, uh, Mount Seir? There it is. It's a bit, uh, south of the Dead Sea. It's an area called Edom. That's a group of people that gave Moses so much trouble in the days of Joshua as he was seeking to enter the land. He had to, there on the Transjordan in the east, pass through, pass through Edom. That was a civilization in decline a civilization in rebellion against God. But this is where the Edomites came from. You might be interested to know that the Herodian dynasty that played such a role in the rushing Jesus through the judicial system to get him turned over to the Romans, to get him killed as fast as they could, You might be interested to know that the Herodian dynasty itself, Herod himself, traces his lineage to Edom. So this Jacob-Esau conflict, which was taking place in the womb of their mother, you remember, Genesis, what is it, 25, right in there, two nations are at war in your womb. That conflict plays itself out All the way through scripture. And here we're seeing the origins of it. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Notice how this paragraph begins. Chapter 36 verse 1. Esau is Edom. From Esau came the Edomite nation. Notice how this paragraph ends. Verse 8. Esau is Edom. And in a book... Concerning beginnings, God wants us to know where each of these nations came from. And we're going to have a lot more fun, believe it or not, as we go through Genesis 36. You're going to know where the Amalekites came from. Uh, you're going to know countless nations that became perennial enemies of Israel and where they came from simply by studying Genesis 36. So I hope you'll be patient with me as we try to work our way through some of these uh, difficult names and genealogies. But I can guarantee you this much. If you put the time in, it's time well spent because you'll have a foundation for the entire Bible and you say, well, Pastor, what about the Joseph story? Joseph is coming. He's he's coming in chapter 37. Don't worry about that. Dessert is on its way. But as our parents taught us, sometimes we got to eat the spinach and the Brussels sprouts first. So that's what we're doing here in chapter 36. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the Jewish Messiah... Personally, we want to give you the gospel. Yes, Jesus was Jewish. He was born through a Hebrew lineage. He was an Israelite. He went on no missionary journeys in his life outside of the borders of Israel. And yet, what Jesus accomplished in and through the nation of Israel is not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. God said to the patriarch, Abram, I will bless you. And through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus stepped out of eternity into time 2,000 years ago and lived a perfect life in our place that we could never live. He fulfilled the law perfectly uh, in our place. And let's see, guys, can I get my map back up there if possible? Um, I can't preach without a map, you know. Um, he fulfilled the law perfectly in our place. And through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he paid for every single sin the human race has ever committed against God. His final words on the cross were, It is finished and he now says to the whole world the may, the way you are made right with the god of israel who is the god of all of us is you need to trust in what my son did for you 2000 years ago don't trust yourself don't trust your works don't trust your religion Put your faith expressly and exclusively in my son, Jesus. And this is a blessing to the whole world. And as the scripture says, the one who blesses Israel will be blessed. If you put your faith in the Jewish king, there's a reciprocal blessing that comes back to you called eternal life. And although this information that we're studying here is very Hebraic and it's very Jewish, God did this for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Israel was set aside to be his vehicle of blessings to the world. And now the Messiah has been born and he's accomplished his mission. His mission is he gives salvation to anyone who will accept freely his grace. Grace means unmerited favor. The only way to receive this grace from God is to trust in the one that the Father has sent, which is a message for all of planet Earth and so anybody that's in the building, anybody watching or listening online, anybody watching or listening via archive after we are closed here has this promise as well. As the Holy Spirit convicts men and women of their need for salvation. Our exhortation is for people to respond to that convicting ministry by placing their faith for their salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins, exclusively into the transaction of Jesus Christ. And as you do that, you're a newborn child of God, just like that. And what a, what a wonderful time to be born of God in a time period where we celebrate the birth of Jesus into our world. Amen. So we just invite anybody that would respond to respond to this message by trusting in Jesus. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to receive, join a church to receive, give money to receive. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you're convicted and you respond through volition by placing your trust for your future And your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul, sola, exclusively into the person of Jesus Christ. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, for one, I'm excited about this time of the year. I'm excited about celebrating your birth. I'm excited about the historical record that you laid down so carefully, carving out this very special nation through which the Savior would be born. I pray many, many people within the sound of my voice would be trusting him and have their salvation secure. Help us to walk these truths out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.